The Law Report with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. Well, as you know, once a month here on the Law Report, we run a legal clinic trying to answer a range of questions on a number of different topics. And tonight, of course, being the second Monday of the month, it's again time to open the lines for you to ask that legal question that doesn't quite fit into the other topics we discuss here on the Law Report. And just before we begin, a reminder that there's a list of available documents on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM. If you'd like any of them, post a message on Facebook, but please remember to include your email address so that I can send them to you. Or if you don't have access to Facebook, email me on law at safm.co.za and I can send you a copy of the list and then you can choose what you want and I will send it to you. Well, I'm joined once again this evening by attorney Nicolene skuman Lowe and she's a director of Skuman Chaka Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries Public here in Cape Town. Nicolene, hello and welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you for having me as always. <laughs> well, if you have any questions, you can call us on 0892 10 9210-2010. Before we've got one email that we'll get to in a moment, but before we get there, last time you were here, we tried valiantly <laughs> to talk about anti-nuptial contracts, but we were so flooded with calls, we didn't quite get to the point. Yeah. So what else did we want to talk about as far as anti-nuptial contracts, your favorite topic? <laughs> well, I think let's maybe backtrack for, for those listeners who did not tune in last month to say that um, having an anti-nuptial contract ensures that you are not married in community of property in our country. So it's essentially a document that you have to execute with an attorney, sign in front of a notary public who is a specialist attorney, and then of course have it registered at the deeds office. Now, importantly, um, some of the key aspects to take out of this would be firstly that you have to sign this anti-nuptial contract before you get married. Um, otherwise, you have to bring a formal court application to change um, your matrimonial property regime, as, as we formally put it, or otherwise simply put in order to allow you to execute one post-nuptial, in other words, post-getting married. It needs to be registered within the deeds office within three months of signing it. So just a bit of technical information to ensure that if you do have one, it's been signed when it's supposed to be signed, or if you intend on having one before you get married, to make sure that you get all of these arrangements done and dusted before the big day. There's more than one type of antinuptial contract. Yes, though. yes. So importantly, there's, there's a distinction um, in terms of having one, and it's either with uh, the application of the accrual system or without. Now, in a nutshell, without is maybe the easier one to start off with. It entails, um, simply put, that what is mine is mine and what is yours is yours. So your anti-nuptial contract if effectively creates an estate for each of the marital parties or each of the spouses, and you are free to share assets to the degree that you wish to do so. For example, if you want to buy a property together um, or a house together, you can always register in both names and then 50% of the house would fall into party A's estate or husband's estate and 50 in part B or wife or spouse A or spouse B as the case may be. So it, it does give you a, a degree of flexibility, but importantly, if you do not specifically record who owns what and things go into what I often refer to as the gray area, then you often find yourself if things do not work out in the unfortunate instance that you are stuck 
having to argue about who bought that couch and who bought that um, that dining room table and the things we don't really keep receipts of. So it's really important if couples are choosing that to put provisions in place via, um, for example, estate planning or to simply make peace with the fact that where you can't agree, um, maybe to, to contract into an option of how to deal with that. So there are many options in, in that space, but um, it is quite flexible. And as I always say to couples, think about it this way. It's got a lot of flexibility in terms of not having the accrual system, but it doesn't protect you if you fail to plan. So it allows for planning and it's your responsibility to make sure that post your anti-nuptial contract being signed and as your marriage continues, that you think about these things and prevent this grey area of, of being created in the first place. I think you often find people have problems with the antenuptial contract, especially if the wife has been working and then they get married and she mm. then they have children. She now is no longer working and heaven forbid something happens and they get divorced. Now the yeah. husband has been accruing all sorts of assets yeah. throughout the marriage. The wife has stopped working um, really came into the marriage with what she had and hasn't actually added to that at all because now she's at home, Yeah, she will come off very badly in a divorce. Of course, and, and that's ex exactly why the accrual system was introduced. Now, back in 1984, as we're all quite aware, um, from a cultural and a, and a people's perspective back then, uh, social notions and all those things, more often than not, specifically females, would go to school... Um, you would be fresh out of school, you'd be very young, or you would just be finished with a diploma or a, a qualification of some sort, but you would never have actually started to work because in that space you would get married and you would start with a family. Many instances the qualifications were not even completed. So quite, quite, um, quite rightly so, as you were saying, in many instances those women were contributing something to the marital household by raising the kids, by sacrificing, by staying at home, and the accrual built in a calculation to take place on termination of marriage, which means death or divorce, so that it would entail that where one party contributes but does not bring in random scent, contributes in some other way, then the party who does climb the corporate ladder or accrues a lot of assets does share with the other spouse. And in that way, the, the scales are even. Um, importantly, though, I think, and this is my personal opinion, that in today's day and age, we often see people get married much later in life. It's not such a tendency to do it in your, in your, when you're still 18 or 19 or in your early 20s even. It's much more prevalent these days for young people to wait until they've established a career of some sort. And that goes for both spouses, not just for one or the other. So the cruel is now more a tool, and I wouldn't say solely to protect the wife or the woman in the relationship either. I think these days it can go either way, and that's important that couples know if you are going to choose the accrual system, there is a degree of sharing. It's not quite 50-50. It's a little more complex, but let's not become too technical. There's a lot of material on our website which listeners are welcome to look into, and it, it sets out the calculation quite nicely. But... Um, these days, it's important to remember the following. If there's a difference in earning capacity between you and your spouse, whether it is because one is a professional or a highly qualified professional, maybe an exceptional skill that that person has, 
versus maybe someone in a in an administrative role or in a in a an employee role that has a glass ceiling, so to speak, in terms of earning capacity. Regardless of whether or not anyone stays at home and raises kids, that calculation will ensure sharing. So if either party is unwilling to share with respect, don't contract into the accrual. That's when people are dissatisfied. That's when people walk out and say, you know what, I was taken to the cleaners in a divorce action because I had to pay out this massive accrual. You signed up to it. so One would hope you didn't get, ever get to that point, but unfortunately, not. You, some people not. do. Sadly. I mean, uh, and, and, and Realistically. Let's, let's be realistic about it. Even the accrual takes place on death or divorce, the calculation itself. Obviously, if it's due to death, you're much more amenable as the receiving spouse to discount or whatever the case may be. But if it's something as bitter as a divorce action, people really <laughs> want it all they and they everything. want it now, not in an installment payment <laughs> arrangement. So just make sure that you know, uh, go and see an attorney. That would be my advice to listeners. See an attorney, make sure that they explain the process to you and that they're related to your specific situation as a couple and how you deal with your finances and also that they explain to you how it will affect you going forward so that you can make an informed decision. If things change and you, say, for example, get married, anti-nuptial, just regular, mm. can you at any point change it to the accrual system? Is that, again, the whole not. application yes. is the same as if you're in and out of community of property? It's the same thing. Accrual, yes. accrual to no accrual or no accrual to accrual, again, is a whole... Expensive yeah. court case. We say to clients, it's not impossible to amend what you've contracted or to um, change your mind or if you forgot or you got bad advice to change it. But it is very difficult and it's very expensive. So make sure that when you get drafted, don't be penny wise and pound foolish. Um, there are good services out there that do not cost an arm and a leg, but do find out about it the minute you get engaged and put it onto the list of priorities. Don't leave it to the last minute or to the day before the wedding. And please don't believe anyone that tells you you can sign it afterwards. I've heard so many of, of our clients that sit in my office and say, oh, no, but I was told I can. We got married two months ago and I was told we can we can come and sign it as long as it's within the three month period. Um I'm, I'm shocked to say I've even been asked to backdate. So, absolutely not. <laughs> right. It should be on, as we've discussed before, on that list of things to do for the wedding. Yes. That is possibly number one on the list of things to do yes. for the wedding. Don't leave, You can't do it afterwards. And if you do change your mind, it's going to cost you. Yes. And you're going to have to go to court. It's all about risk for the creditors. Just to add on why this is a court application process. Obviously, if both parties... Um, form one estate by not having a contract, your creditors love that because they've got two pools of income to use as security in making sure you pay whatever you've borrowed. Now, if you had the split, clean split, and you are not due to be sharing with your spouse, now viewed from the spouse who would be getting the accrual payout, the bank or whoever is a creditor is not going to like someone else having a preferential claim um, uh, in line or ne not necessarily a preferential claim, but a claim um, in addition to theirs. So that's that's essentially the, the method or the, the, the reasoning behind 
why the law is structured the way it is. It's for for it's a risk assessment from from the creditor's perspective. So please put it on your list along with your photographer. It's the only <laughs> the thing you have The flowers and the cake and the whatever else. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be on the list. As I said, possibly even number one on the list. Yes, definitely. Right, let's take some calls. Annie in Jeffrey's Bay, good evening. Um, good evening. I'm phoning about um, lifelong use of rest. Yes. My husband and I are married by anti-nuptial contract, but we have two homes, a home and a holiday home. Mm-hmm. And he has in his will has left me both homes for lifelong usufruct, but I have three stepchildren. Yes. Do they have the right to throw me out of one or both of the houses? <laughs> no, they do not. Depending, of course, on how the usufruct has been set up, many people call um, the right to live in a property um, a usufruct, but a usufruct is something that is actually registered against the title deed once um, your your husband then passes on. Then the, the will kicks in, so to speak, becomes effective, and an endorsement, as we say, or a, an extra condition is then placed in the title deed. And okay. if they attempt to do that, then there's a legal basis that you that you can use in taking them them to court. Oh, thank we you hope very, that doesn't get to that was, point. was this something that was put onto the title deed, Annie? Yes, now I know that we will see that it's done. Okay. Okay, because then you can stay there. I don't. They've, as as Nicolene says, if that is all in place, they've got yes. no right to do anything yeah, to but, you. But, but um, the will once the will comes into place, then it will be added to the title deed. Is that right? Yes. Just make sure that whoever's drafted the will for you has done it properly. Okay. Thank you very very much. Good luck to you, okay, Annie. Good luck. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. I wanted to ask her how long has the will actually come into play already because, I mean, would it have to be something, obviously in the will he would say that she has usufruct, lifelong usufruct. Yes, and that's and how you And then the attorney that is actually dealing with the yes. estate, would then would they be responsible for going in and making sure that it's actually added to the title deed? You have to declare it in the liquidation and distribution account as a limited interest. Um, in other, it's, without becoming too technical, of course, a usufruct and a fide commissum and all these limited rights give you limited use of fixed property. So in this case, it would be to live there. And in the case of a farm, for example, if you can plant and, and uh, reap the fruits, quite literally in that case, then you would be able to profit from your, your stay. So it's, it's really something that that is recorded quite clearly in the documentation with the master, and in addition to that, must automatically be endorsed accordingly on the title deed. But it's good that, that Annie called with that question because other people now know that if they, mm. are, they are in the similar situation, maybe just inquire at mm. the time that this will is being sorted out and the estate is being wound up, maybe just inquire that this has been done because you don't yes. want to... I mean, I'm not casting aspersions on attorneys, but sometimes, unfortunately, things do fall through the cracks. Yes. And maybe or, it's good just to have that in your head that you know that this is something you need to just double-check on. Also, um, people often refer to the usufruct as the right of use or my mum will be allowed to stay in the house but a usufruct is more than that if it's from a legal perspective. So it needs to be termed correctly so that it's absolutely clear. And we need to come back to the nature of a will. A will is such a sensitive document. Make sure and and treat it almost like you're explaining what you want to a three-year-old. And I, I know that sounds silly, but make sure whatever you put into a will is detailed 
not to the finest degree so that whoever's drafting it for you make sure that anyone can understand what you meant so that we don't have to argue about do we we mean use only or can she maybe rent out a room and collect rental to help herself out with expenses and running costs or what have you. Now, so, for those who aren't quite sure what a usufruct is, that is if you get, say, for example, I leave you a house. Mm-hmm. But I don't leave, I leave you the house, but I allow my spouse or whoever it is to continue living in that house. The house never actually physically belongs. It wasn't left to them in the mm. world. It's left to a third party. Yes. Is that correct? Exactly. In in law, we refer, refer to the bare dominium holder. That's the person that holds the title. Um, who is responsible for all the expenses and all of that kind of thing, uh, for the maintenance, the upkeep, all the things that you would normally associate with a traditional owner. So the husband could leave it to the wife, or mm-hmm. it could leave it to the children, but with the use of fact of to the wife, so the mm-hmm. wife can stay in it, like in her case, in yes. Annie's case, she can stay in it for, for the rest of her life, but once she passes away, mm. it goes to the children. Yes. So it's already so left to them. So then you remove them. the title condition mm. that was endorsed to protect the person who has this lifelong use of right. Obviously, from a tax perspective, and this is purely just for a, for a quick tidbit of extra information, you you there's a tax implication on obviously when the the bequeathal takes place. So when the inheritance falls due, there's a estate duty implication on, and there's a very complicated mathematical way of calculating the estate duty portion payable on on the bare dominium and a estate duty portion payable on uh, the on, on the usufruct itself. And once the usufructory, the person such as the spouse who has the right of use, falls away, then again, that's a, a portion, that's something with a value in her estate. So there's again a very complicated mathematical way of, of calculating the the value of what is then transferred to her is or fully to um, to the bare dominium holder as such to be technically correct in that regard. See, there was a reason I wasn't an attorney. It's way too complicated, Nicola. So it's quite complicated. Make sure that the, the, <laughs> the moral of the story is make sure if that is what you want in your world that it's that it's set up like that and not something else like a, in Latin we call it a usus. In other words, something that is only use-based and not use and fruits. And all of that, it's, it becomes a bit technical, but make sure if you want that, that you know what the cost implications are for your estate, that you can make an informed decision. Right. Just a reminder, you tuned to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key, and this is The Law Report. My guest tonight is attorney Nicolene skuman Lowe, and she's a director of skuman Chaka Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries Public, practicing here in Cape Town. We're doing a law clinic, so no fixed topic this evening. So if you have any questions, you can call us on 0892102010, Andres in Bloemfontein, good evening. Oh, good evening, Karen and Nicolene. Hello, Hi. how can we help you? Okay, I just want to know, I already got the product on my name and I was single when I, uh, this thing, on, 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 um, uh, I, I bought the property. So the property is right now on my name and on the title deed is written unmarried. So now I'm gonna, I'm, I'm about to marry and I don't know, should I have to go and change it again or what will happen after I marry the lady or, but I, I want to lay, uh, marry her without community of property. So do I have to go to the deed office to change it to the married or I can leave it to the unmarried, uh, as a unmarried status? 
That's actually a very good question. I think uh, many people would like to know the answer to that. Um, it's actually um, not necessary for you to go to the deeds office and to update your marital status. Um, it's usually something that affects um, our our um, ladies that choose to, to change their surnames more than it does um, uh, the men. Um, in that regard, or, or persons who try to, or, who choose to change the surname versus the spouse who, who elects to keep their maiden name, um, as the case may be. So it's literally a, a question of next time around when you when you sell the property to someone else, the conveyancer will again give you a set of documents to complete for FICA purposes, and in that they will then pick up that you your marital status has now changed. And they'll just record you as now being married in passing transfer to the new person. Um, in the case of people taking surnames or, or ladies taking their husband's surname, for example, um, you actually, in some instances, do cite the maiden name in brackets just for identification purposes when you transfer to the next person. So long story short, no, you need not change it. Okay, they won't tell me I made a fraud. I'm already no. married, but on my title deed is written unmarried. That's why I was asking that. Okay, but you you only you're only getting married now, and you've already you've already but, taken transfer. So that's correct. Yeah, so correct, at the yeah. moment it's still a true state of affairs, and uh, most certainly it um, people get married, people do all sorts of things, people get divorced, and all of that. So. Um, the deeds office regulations does cater for that. So um, all you'll do is in on the next transfer that it will it will be corrected to say that you are married out of community of property now. It's okay, actually quite a... Okay, Thanks so too. much, Andrea. Thanks for the call. Good night to you. Well, I just have to explain to you, I am seriously technologically challenged. <laughs> <laughs> I am now sitting here with one of these tablet things in front of me, and I think it might work. And I've just picked up a message on here. So if you have any questions or whatever and you can't get through, you can message me on Facebook. Hopefully I'll pick them up. It's Law on SAFM. Mm. So if you have a message, you can do that now while I'm in the studio. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm shocking myself because, I mean, <laughs> this is way beyond what I think I'm capable of. But anyway, before we get to the next call, Nicolene, sorry, we had one email that came in. Yeah. And um, it's from Sabello and his sister Puleng. It says, during 2013, we applied for the benefits of our late father. I'm his son and I have an older sister. We applied for the death benefits at MIBFA. I'm not sure what that is. Yeah. They requested we get a letter of authority at the Master's High Court, and we did so. At a later stage... They sent us a letter to get a letter of executorship for because the amount was more than 120000 but they didn't specify exactly how much that amount was. It just said it was more than 120000 We went to the High Court. They again told us we need an attorney, and we understand if we go through with the arrangement, the attorney is entitled to 3.5% of the amount. Mm -hmm. Now, what's bothering him, he says, he, what we want to know is... If the, the attorney that we need, will he or she charge us the normally charged per hourly rate every time we are being summoned? Is this a fee that he or she will charge us for assisting us with the completion of the necessary documents that have to be handed forward? We have every document which is needed. We have opened a later state account and have the letter of authority, including a copy of the deceased's ID book, the death certificate, etc. We'd appreciate some advice from someone who understands the procedures and from someone who actually works with estate accounts more frequently. And I'm assuming that's you. <laughs> 
Okay, well, in a nutshell, um, the 3.5% is the executive fee as defined in the Administration of Estates Act. So that means the person who is the appointed executor is entitled to remuneration for their services and wrapping up the estate. In many instances, the executor is a family member and not uh, someone who is a professional in the administration process. So practically speaking, the executor is often um, left to contract with an attorney as their representative. So just to make that clear, the 3.5% is what you as the executor is entitled to, not necessarily your representative. So you need to go to an attorney and make a fee arrangement. Now traditionally, if you have done some of the work as the executor and you are not an attorney, then you've saved the attorney of some effort. So traditionally, and many firms work on this basis, you are then entitled to three or 50% of the 3.5% remuneration as the attorney and the executor technically keeps the other half to compensate um, for any expenses incurred outside of those that are provable, if I can put it that way, in the estate account. So my advice would be the, the limit is 3.5%. That obviously excludes VAT. So go to an attorney and enter into a written fee arrangement with them. To answer the question about the hourly rates... Mm, it wants to know if, if they're going to get charged every time that they are being called on to do something. For, for me, and, and I think it again, get clarification by entering into a written contract with that attorney, okay? And have them explain exactly how they're going to charge. If it's part, what needs to be done is part and parcel of the administration process in the normal flow of things to get documents signed, they must go to the master and so on, that should fall under the 3.5% or so such a fee that you've agreed, you know, the 50% portion of the 3.5% or whatever the case may be. Um, but I have heard similarly that there are many firms that charge the 3.5% Plus oh, okay. consultation fees. So rather enter into an, an arrangement with the attorney. And obviously, if you're dissatisfied with the charges, the attorney does belong to a professional body. Approach the law society if you've been wronged, but be proactive and rather protect yourself and enter into a formal written agreement with the attorney. So that you know upfront what yes. you are going to be liable but technically for. Technically, it... it for me, it sounds completely unsound to charge 3.5% plus consultation fees mm -hmm. or hourly rates, whatever you want to call it, um, if it's in the normal course. I mean, in many instances, and we must clarify this, things happen as a result of the administration process. For example, someone hasn't left a will and now five or six people pop up everywhere and say, oh, no, we're related to this person then there may be court action to resolve mm. that dispute before the admin process starts. And in that sense, it's quite legitimate to be charged for the attorney's but the, time. But Sabello seems to be on the ball here. It's got all the documentation. Yes. Everything's right there. If it's part it's of the, the, the admin They need process, an attorney because it's more yeah. than 120,000, apparently. Exactly. No, that, that the 120 is actually 125 currently. Oh, okay. Um, and that is the asset value. So if there's policies, fixed assets, bank accounts, those kind of things, 
that quickly adds up to more than 125,000, mm. as we all know. And then you have to appoint an executor and not a master's representative in the state administration process. If it's a master's representative or under 125,000, it's much shorter because you don't have to advertise, you don't have to file an account and all these kind of things. While if it's over 125,000, you have to go through all the processes in the in the administrative process. Right. Well, Sabella, I hope that has answered your question. Right. Pakamisa in Ranfontein. Good evening. Good evening, ma'am. How are you? Very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. Right. you have a question then for us? Yes, ma'am. I would like to ask, you know, uh, my late father left uh, some property. Actually, it was land that was unserviced. 1984. And I was not aware of, of, the, of the whole, the wheel and everything, but some few years back, I, I got hold of the wheel, even though it was the, not the original. So I'm struggling to get it onto my name now, because on the wheel it says I should inherit it. And the other problem is that now there are people that who have occupied that place that are staying there. Oh. Uh, are, so they, are they relatives of yours, Pakamisa, or just who are they? Come again? Who are the people that are staying there now? No, 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 no. It's people that are... That apparently others say they were sold some part of oh, the land sold. by my late oh. mother. Uh, but they've got no title deed, they've got nothing to show. You see. Oh, wow. So they've been staying there since, I think, in the 80s, late 80s, 90s. Okay. So what is it that I can do to, to, to be able to, 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 to get the land back and the Mm. Well, first and foremost, you need to go and see an attorney that they do a bit of research into who actually does own that property. Those records are quite easily accessible from the deeds office. And if you know what you're yeah. looking for, it's it's a, a relatively easy process to get a copy of the latest title deed, which will prove who the lawful owner is and whether yeah, it has, in fact, been sold. And if so... No, We'll have to dig up those records and sort of come to the bottom of where something went wrong and then advise you whether or not it is correctable. Yeah, I, I've already gone to the to the deeds office. Mm -hmm. And it is still stating my late father as the holder of the title deed. Well, then get yourself an attorney who is also a conveyancer that can do the necessary to transfer that property. Once your name reflects on the title deed, that gives you locus standi, or in other words, the right to be heard in terms of kicking those other people out of the house in terms of uh, the the pie act, as we call it. So it's, they will then become unlawful occupants because there's no agreement. They're not the lawful owners. They are just staying there. They're probably not even paying rent. So you'll then start the process of giving them notice to vacate, which they, from our experience, never do. So at that point, one will have to bring uh, the relevant application to evict them. Good luck. Good luck, Pakamisa. It's going to be a bit of a long road, but uh, by the sounds of it, you've got right on your side. So, yeah. you know, I wouldn't leave it. Don't leave no. it any longer. Just uh, get moving as soon as you can now that you've discovered the problem. Okay, no, thank you very much. Good luck to you, Pakamisa. Good night. This is now rather exciting because I've got some messages on the Facebook page. It's actually <laughs> working. I can't quite believe it. I'm actually quite impressed with my own self. Good
And a message here from Ramasan who says, I was shot inside a CNA retail store last year when I was going to purchase some books. I'm asking well, how, how I go about being compensated. How much does that compensation range? I was severely hurt. I had to live with and a, lodged, a, a bullet was lodged in my body. Wow. Well, that, that would fall under a, a claim against the store, of course. Um, Third-party claim, as, well, I mean, as insurance he, call it. We don't know enough about the story. I mean, was this somebody you knew that walked in and shot him for some reason? Or was yeah, this like a, a hold-up in the store? It depends, we, I suppose. If we it? take this purely on what is said, and we don't fill in any other details at the moment, um, there could be an action against the store. Similarly, if you go into a store and you slip and you fall, you also have an you also have an action or could have an action against them. So this is a bit out of my field. Um, this would fall into the space of personal injury. Um, there are quite a few firms that do the road accident fund claims. And in addition to that, they also do um, deal with the, uh, the personal injury claims. So I would recommend going to see one of them. They usually work on a contingency basis as well. So can't really say what the limit is. The sky's the limit. You need to prove your your loss, essentially. That's a fundamental uh, principle of law. You have to prove your loss um, and, of course, your medical expenses and all those things. But you need to prove fault in some way or form back on the store. In If we take our example of the falling in many instances let's say a little tile is slightly out of place and that's why you fell then of course it's a clear-cut case they should have made sure that they have a store that is a safe environment for their customers if someone holds up the store they have all, all sorts of security measures in place and they've done what every other reasonable store owner sh should and would have done um, it may be a difficult case to 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 prove so I would say go and see someone that specializes in, in personal the field. injury. In personal injury. Okay. Ramasan, if you can possibly just post again on Facebook and just tell me where you are in the country, I can mm. maybe send you a list of potential attorneys that deal with that that you could have a look at. Yeah, or just phone the Law Society. Or phone the Law Society, yeah. Or they, they can I'll send you a the... comprehensive mm. list. Right. Enid in Robertson, good evening. Oh, good evening to you both. Hi. I would just like to know uh, who is responsible for registering an uh, international contract at the deeds office, and if it's not done, is the, inter the uh, contract still uh, in place? Uh, is it still valid, please? Okay. The, the person who registers the antinuptial contract is usually the attorney in front of who you signed. Now, that attorney is a special... Uh, is, is designated as a notary public. So it's an additional qualification to being a, an attorney. Um, and if that is not registered, in other words, if there was a bit of a mistake on the attorney's side, then um, it may be, it may still be valid between you, um, as we say, inter partes. In other words, you, if something goes wrong in your marriage and you have to go for a divorce, then you may have an extra hurdle to jump over in terms of saying this was agreed in our antinuptial contract. We believe it was never properly registered within the three-month period after getting married. Um, and we had no reason to believe that this wasn't done. We only realized that X amount of time later, but we still consider ourselves bound to this agreement. And then the court may allow or disallow it. 
If you realize it now already, I would recommend that you get it corrected. And if it's the attorney's fault, they should in they should pay for it in simple okay. terms. Okay, thank you very much. Good okay. evening, thank you. Thanks, Enid. Good thank night you. to you. Bye-bye. Another message on the Facebook. I'm very excited. (laughs) (laughs) It's from Cornelia. It says, "Um, I was attacked by boiling water by my wife in her parents' house. We don't have a house. We were staying in her brother's house. We don't have children. We're married in community of property. I recently bought a car and it's parked at her house. What is my recourse while I'm still awaiting legal advice? Oh, that's always a difficult one. Um, if you're married in community of property, by default, everything you own, whether it's only on your name or on your spouse's name, is actually owned by both of you in undivided shares. Even though 50, he was attacked 50. by his wife with boiling water. <sighs> Unfortunately. So I would recommend that you don't just go and collect the car yourself. Um, get an attorney, firstly. Bring an application to get a protection order. Um, the Americans call it a restraining order, um, and then go and collect the car with assistance in terms of the protection order. In some provinces, I know if you request the magistrate to add an additional term to ask the police to accompany you um, to go and collect the vehicle, if you can show ownership on the paperwork, you can do so. But how does that work then? Now, if they're married in community of property, surely half the car belongs to her. And so what, what right does he then have in law to go and remove the car? You see, um, it's, it's, a, it's about ownership and not really about use. If I can put it that way. Similarly, you will own 50% of the house, which she's exclusively living in and making it impossible for him to be. Well, it's her parents' house. She said they don't oh, have the a house. parents' house. They were staying in her brother's house. They were, th- she threw the boiling water on over him in her parents' house. Okay. But they're actually living in her brother's house. Okay. Well, because if, they don't have a house. Similarly, if, if they were to have their own house, then, you know, the sword cuts both mm. ways. Uh, it's always a tricky situation. So once there's no, going to be no legal comeback on him if he goes to get the car back. It's a difficult situation. Don't just go and take the car. Take advice. Um, and if you take the car on the basis of advice, go and collect it with the assistance of the SAPS because there's an imminent threat with, for assault or abuse of some kind. Mm. Also get a protection order to protect yourself in going forward. But... Um, it's always difficult. Don't do anything funny with the car or anything like that. If one can also, of course, request the court to authorize you to go and collect the car, specifically if you're using it in your business in, and it's sort of the lifeline to your to your earning ab- ability. So um, importantly, get advice and get a protection order. Those are the first steps and don't Collect the car or anything on owner court. Don't do anything before you haven't appointed yourself an attorney. Okay, because otherwise you could end being the one, end up looking at some jail time or being yeah, arrested for stealing or something. So similarly, don't ever do that. No, for stealing, I think is the least of the risk. If if you the car is properly registered on your name, there's no legal basis for accusing theft. But technically speaking, there's this 50-50 ownership and... Um, similarly, if you leave the car there and the person is as upset and violent as, as they currently are, they may damage, damage the car. That's unfortunately the risk that goes both ways. So, importantly, get some advice, get a protection order, and don't just go and do anything on own accord. Do it with the guidance of your attorney. 
Right, uh, we've got about 15 minutes left this evening. So just a reminder, we you tuned to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key, and this, of course, is The Law Report. My guest tonight is attorney Nicolene Skuman-Lo, a director of Skuman-Chaka Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries, public practicing here in Cape Town. We're doing a law clinic this evening, so if you have any questions for us, call us on 0892 10 2010 Before we take any more calls, I just want to talk a little bit about what we're doing next week mm. because you're coming back. Oh, yeah. With Mzor. <laughs> Mzor Chaka has been on the show with me before, mm-hmm. but we're going to be talking about your business and the law, effectively. Yes. So, what, what do you have problems with your business, commercial mm-hmm. law, pro- business law? Yes, That's anything, next week. anything you want to know about business. Um, in the practice, um, my my colleague and, and partner, um, shareholder also with me, and a director, is um, he's in charge of commercial law. He deals with litigious matters and all sorts of things. Similarly, I also deal with commercial law, and we um, we aim to assist your business to comply. We work out solutions for you that make sense to your business. And that also, in addition to being legally compliant, makes good business sense. So that's what we do on a day-to-day basis at Skuman Shaka Attorneys. And what we do in addition to that, or I often call myself the bridge between the business and the people behind the business, is um, to ensure that once your business starts to become profitable and you've reached break-even point and all these fabulous things, your business is growing into its next phase and season, as we say, then we help you to structure the risk or ring fence in the proper terms, the risk in your business, and to make sure that your personal life is equally ring-fenced from risk so that the one doesn't threaten the existence of the other in simple terms. So that's where I come in. I help you with a will as a business owner. We help you with trusts, with estate planning, uh, anti-nuptial contracts, so that your personal life is treated with as much planning and care and essentially smart legal ways of protecting yourself and being preventative as opposed to being crisis management or in crisis management mode all the time and being reactive and ending up in court and all these things that cost a lot of money. Yeah, you have spoken about this before, talking about things, heaven forbid, if you pass away mm. um, and you maybe were the director of a company, what happens then? Yeah. You know, what happens to the business? And you talk a lot about that yes. and how that is because you could end up saying, I leave everything to my wife and your wife who does not have a clue about an engineering business or yeah. whatever business you're running, whatever, suddenly yeah. is now got stuck with the thing and your business is not going to survive. So that exactly. you do a lot about do a lot of planning around yes. that as well. So, so in, in addition to sort of ring fencing the risk, and we see that as a crucial crucial part of ring fencing risk for any business you'll I'm shocked every day from the beginning to to realize when business owners sit in my office and, and brag about the fact that they don't have wills or if they do they haven't thought about what happens to the business mm-hmm. they they've become so passionate and it's it's great to see and they've become so entwined with what they do in this business that it's absolutely impossible to separate this person from the business, which means if they don't plan what happens to the business if, if I'm no longer here or if, heaven forbid, I'm hit by a bus tomorrow, that every day's work for the last 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years actually be, become reduced to nothing. So it's not just about not planning for death 
and who takes over from you. So the handover process. It's also about not thinking, um, have I structured things in such a way that if something happens to me tomorrow, my employees still have jobs, um, the good work that this company of mine does can continue, I can leave a footprint, a legacy behind that, hey, I was here in the business world and in the, the hearts of my family. So that's really where I always say the bridge between what we do every day to generate an income, to make things better, to impact our communities, really comes back to who we are at home. Right. So anything you want to know about your business and how to plan it and any problems you have legally with your business, next week is the mm. date. Tune Looking in. We'll be talking it. about that. Joan in Gauteng, good evening. Hello, You're Joan. my call. Hi. How, are we, how can we help you, I'm Joan? very well. Thank you. I've forgotten the name of the, of the attorney. It's Nic- Nicolene. It's Nicolene. <laughs> Nicolene. Hello, Nicolene. Hi. <laughs> I've been chuckling to myself as I'm working and listening to your program that um, my wedding, which is in two weeks, we, we haven't even thought about the, the, the dress or the cake or the, or the contract when I'm in my first And um, it's a second marriage. Mm-hmm. I'm divorcee and my, my husband-to-be is a widower. And obviously, yes, we're both professional people and we both, you know, aren't stupid, but we haven't really pinned down this ANC contract. And I think it's, it's because of this with accrual and without accrual. Obviously, the community of property thing is not being considered. Mm. But the initial suggestion from my, my fiancé was, let's just go without the accrual. And as your program mentioned, it's easier and then the with accrual becomes more complicated. But I mm. thought I'd just depict the situation I'm in, and perhaps you could give me a sort of a gut feel of which really is the best to go. I obviously have a part property with my ex-husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I join, have joint ownership of a house which he's living in, so I don't actually have um, funds from that house. And then I have a pension scheme that's in my children's name. And besides that, I bring nothing else to the marriage. Mm-hmm. I'm a professional person still earning. And in his situation, he obviously has pension schemes from the previous working life with a big corporation, as a biological son with his late wife, who passed away three years ago, oh. and two stepchildren. So obviously he has a family that needs to mm. benefit from his long working life when they were still children in his home. Mm. And obviously I want to go with the simplest and the without accrual is, is easier and it was his initial suggestion. However, the with accrual is something that makes things feel fairer and that you're sharing and emotionally that it's a more comfortable arrangement. Am I being too sentimental about things? There's my story. Okay. Now, I, I've said this to couples on many occasions. The one system isn't superior to the other and the other inferior to it. They are both equally functional, equally good systems, just tailored for different people. So the key really is is to find out what fits you as a couple best. Now, there are a couple of things with the accrual. Yes, it gives you that security, to know that what you build up during your marriage, to some mm. degree, in, in accordance with this calculation I was referring to, will be shared. Now, in that sense, it's absolutely fair, and if both are professional people, I don't foresee one party 
paying out a massive amount and the other one having mm. very little. It won't be that extreme mm. situation that that the system was actually created for in the outset, uh, if we think back to the 1984 scenario. Yes. So, yes, it does give you some comfort. Yes, it does have some fairness built into it to say, you know, whatever happened before, and remember with the accrual, that is excluded. How I, yes, What you stand at at date of marriage, everything before that in terms of your your estate value is actually deducted from your termination value on all death right. or divorce. So, so it's already separate in that regard. That's already separate. Any okay. inheritances mm. that you may have received uh, or are due to receive are automatically excluded. And okay. we recommend that any pension funding also be specifically excluded, excluded from the accrued. Okay, so then that so, regard, it, it's got that same simplicity that the without accrual. Yes, you can have a tailored okay. to your needs, essentially. The that only risk in the accrual system, and and I'm I'm speaking from the perspective of a business owner, so please do contextualize what I'm about to say. Mm. In my view, the accrual system amounts to a loan account okay payable between the spouses in an uncertain future amount yes. and at an uncertain future date because you don't know when someone's going to die of course. you of don't course. know if you are going to get divorced or not yes. so there's risk in it if you fail to plan of similarly course. there's risk in not having the accrual system and not dealing with that gray area I was talking mm -hmm. about. So okay. both come with equal responsibility. You need to plan. But importantly, the good thing that it, the accrual does that it think, is it thinks for you to a certain degree. Okay. And, and some people are quite comfortable with that. And if that's what you're looking for. Sorry, Joan, you were saying about the will? Yes, I just wanted to know if, if you go with, the, um, with either of the systems, mm. are the wills, which one has superiority? Well, practically speaking, the accrual gets paid out first from yes. an estate if someone dies yes. or gets claimed, you yes. know, if you pay or you claim, depending on, on which side of the coin you're on. And then once the, the balance left over gets divided in terms of your will. Okay. So the balance right. then left mm -hmm. over, all your uh, creditors are paid. All the admin costs are paid, and then the, the net total, call it that, that gets distributed to your heirs. In and there you've the got world. absolute, okay. yes, in, in terms, terms of the will. And there the person has absolute freedom what to do and who gets what. Okay, and in, in terms of the without accrual system, are you tied in with wills or mm -hmm. are wills excluded from the without accrual? Because at some stage I picked up that by making this choice right at the beginning, you really are determining something about the world. And I just need a little bit of help there. Now, I don't think, in my view, that you're determining something only about your will. You are determining your, your ability to transact if you choose not to have a contract. In other words, if you're married in community of property, you adversely affect your ability to transact as an individual. Um, Similarly, if you have a contract, it affects your, the way in which you'll contract for the rest of your life. It affects your financial, um, the, the financial 
way going forward, your financial <laughs> planning, so to speak, but not necessarily in a negative way. It just means you're no longer single. So you need to factor in that there's someone else in your life. And similarly at death, that person is now part of your life and needs to be considered um, in some way or form in the world. And in addition to the children you, you may have. So it, it gives it a different direction. Maybe this explains it better. Your antinuptial contract is like the foundation of a house. Yes. Everything you do to get to generate an income could be compared to the walls of this house. Mm -hmm. So if your foundation is unstable, your walls will fall apart, if that okay. makes sense. If it does. Thank you. You've been and, very helpful, Nicolene. And then the will, right at the top, is your roof. Similarly, if everything else is unstable, the roof is not going to hold either. But the roof is a very important part as it protects everything you've worked for your entire life. And built up. Okay. Yes. Very good. Excellent. You'll make a good English teacher as well. <laughs> <laughs> Joan, Thank you compliment. So much. Joan, good Thank luck you. with the wedding. <laughs> Thank you. Have Thank a you. Good, good luck. Good night. I just hope Joan said when she phoned up, she said she hadn't thought about the cake and the dress and the and the contract. I think she must think change that. She hasn't thought about the contract, the cake. <laughs> the contra I, I have going on about this top of the list. We've got oh John, if you can be very brief, we've got two two minutes. John in Durban, good evening. Yes. Uh, hi. A, hi. A is married to B. Mm -hmm. A has married has children from her previous marriage. Mm-hmm. She is only in a religious marriage. Mm -hmm. She had to change her religion at the time that she got marriage, yeah. married. She does not want to be married according to that religious group. Mm. How does she cover herself? Well, um, you've got a minute. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> in terms of our religious marriages, if they are not properly registered with the Department of Home Affairs, in other words, that the relevant forms and, and so on were filled in through the marriage officer, then it's not a legally recognized marriage in terms of South African civil law, which means yeah. if you have to dissolve the marriage, you have to go back to the religious portion of it. Yeah. But legally, yeah. you are seen as unmarried. That's the yeah. short answer to the to the long question that I can quickly squeeze in. No, Does that the, help the, you? The, the, no, you haven't answered the question. On the death of A, mm -hmm. she does not want to be married by the religious rites mm -hmm. into which she was married. She, is it possible to put a clause in the world saying, notwithstanding the, all the decision regarding how I am to be buried, is left to my daughters. Oh. You, you daughter. can contract the freedom of testation rules that you can, can direct any wishes in your will, provided that they are lawful. And if your marriage, your religious marriage, was never properly registered with the Department of Home Affairs, from a legal perspective, I cannot answer the religious aspect. You are unmarried in terms of the eyes of our legal system. But you can put whatever you want but you to in your will. But you can put whatever you can put into, whatever you would like to, to be put into your will. And anyone who's feel, feels dissatisfied can challenge it in a court of law. 
John, I'm afraid we have to go, but thank you so much for getting through to us this evening. I hope that sort of half, yes. half answered your okay. question. And sorry to Bongani and Omtata, we have just run out of time. My thanks once again this evening to Nicolene Skuman Lowe, a director at Skuman Chaka Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries Public, practicing here in Cape Town, and she's been my guest on tonight's edition of the Law Report program. Nicolene, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me as always. And I was going to say that Nicolene's back with us again for another law clinic on Monday the 10th of February, but her and Mzor Chaka will be back with us next week when we're talking mm. your business and the law, yes. so commercial law next week. You can tune into the Law Report every Monday on SAFM between 9 and 10 and a reminder about that list of available documents on Facebook. It's Law on SAFM. Post a message with your email address. I'll send you what you like or you can email me law at safm.co.za and I'll send you a copy of the list so that you can choose what you want. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with Health Matters. It's our monthly phone-in and tomorrow night we're talking about arthritis with rheumatologist Dr. Catherine Spargo. So join me then. Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hello Stephen.